We're taking a walk down the Roman road. Now I'm going to sit. That's another thing I like about Wednesday nights. I can sit. I can share from a chair. Amen? All right. Um, I want you to turn to the very first page because I want to make sure that we're... uh, How many of you were not here last week? Not here last week. Okay, good. So good to have the newbies. Everybody got a book? Anybody not have a book? Okay, we're good. Now, last week, I, I gave you just a little simple uh, Romans in a nutshell with this, this um, on the very first page. You will see it, it just says Romans, and it's got lines above it. You'll see the lines, different lines, the plus mark, um, which is the cross, the eyelash there, which is uh, a ditch, so and so on and so forth. You can figure it out. But let's look at this again, because I'm going to give you the book of Romans in, in six succinct points, all right? Romans 1, 1 through 17 is the cross. When you read Romans 1, 1 through 17, it's going to be all about the cross. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to the Jew first, also to the Greek. Romans 1, 1 through 17 is focused on the cross. Then Romans 1, 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, we're in the ditch. And what does that mean? Is Paul is laying the case that all of man is in sin. There's not one man, not one woman, who does not have a sin problem that needs to be forgiven. And so he, we're calling it the ditch. So we've got the cross, we've got the ditch. And Paul is going to make the case for three chapters, 118 through 320. Uh, he's going to show us how we are in an inescapable ditch, and we must have grace. Amen? Then Romans chapter 3, 21 through chapter 5, we got the road, and that is where God presents us as righteous before God. How, everybody, by our own works? No, by faith in Jesus Christ. One of the themes in Romans is that we are saved by faith, not our works. We can't earn our own salvation. If God left us here a million years, we could never do it. So we're going to see the road in chapters 3, uh, verse 21 through chapter 5. Now, chapters 6 through 8, we have the plan. The Lord calls us to live out righteous lives by Christ's power within us. And remember, if you read Romans uh, 7, you will see Paul being very transparent with his struggle with the flesh. What I want to do, I don't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I do. Oh, wretched man, who will save me from the body of this death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? So, and then he tells us how to do it in chapter 8, by walking in the Spirit. Now, chapters 9 through 11, we have the world. And God is making his name great by spreading his grace to the whole world. I had a call about this um, on the radio tonight. Um, and it was uh, somebody asking about, uh, well, I'm not going to go into the question because it's kind of complicated theologically, but the bottom line is that God still has his hand on Israel and he still has his hand on the church. And Romans 9 through 11 show God's sovereign plan for Israel and for the whole world being worked out according to his good pleasure. Amen? And then chapters 12 through 16, the way all Pauline, when I say Pauline, I mean of Paul, all Pauline epistles end this way with practical uh, how to apply the truth you've learned to every day, walk a day, walk through life, life. All right? Paul always gets practical in the end of his letters. All right. So everybody say with me, the cross, the ditch, the road, the plan, the world, the kingdom. Amen. Now say it's going to be good tonight. All right. Now let's go and uh, let's begin with part two. And it's going to be right after the little section for your notes. Now we're calling this a walk down the Roman road, part two. We're going to look tonight. Chapter two is all about the guilt of the hypocrite. The guilt of the hypocrite. Now we saw last time and do a quick recap of chapter one. We saw last time that mankind, in his spiral downward into sin, made three tragic uh, tragic exchanges. Remember that? Made exchanges. What did they exchange? This is talking about the Gentiles, not the Jews. The Gentiles. Us. 
They exchanged the worship of God for idols. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Third, they exchanged natural relationships for unnatural ones. Sound like today? In return, God gave them over three times. So what you have in Romans 1, three really bad exchanges and three turning overs or really bad consequences. First one, God turned them over to sexual impurity. It was, this was heterosexual sin. Second, he turned them over to shameful lusts, and that's homosexual sin. And then lastly, to me the scariest one, they, he turned them over to a reprobate mind. And that means you can no longer tell right from wrong. For a third time, in five verses, Paul wrote that when people disregard God's revelation in nature, he gives them power over, or he gives them over to the normal consequences that follow. In verse 28, Paul declared that God gives them over to a depraved mind. Quote, furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind to do uh, what ought not to be done. So when you turn from the light of God's revelation, even the revelation of nature, because nature shouts, there has to be a creator. Amen? All right. When you turn from the light of revelation, it prevents a person from thinking correctly about the issues of life. It messes with your thinking. When you reject the God who made your brain, your brain doesn't work properly. Okay, Because God's truth is what makes our brain and our thinking healthy. That's why we're told in Romans 12, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, your brain, your thoughts. Uh, right? And, and how do you do that? By getting into the Word of God. Now, um, depraved or reprobate means void of judgment. Once God, God's revelation is rejected, the ability to think correctly about the issues of life becomes very flawed. Now, I ask you again tonight, is the thinking in our country and in our world crazy, baby? Is it, do, you, do you ever look at laws that are being passed and things that are coming out of people's mouths and go, what are you talking about? That's not rational. It's not logical. It's not sound. It's wacky. What's wrong with your thinking? God's word tells us what's wrong with their thinking. When you reject God and his revelation, if you keep rejecting it and going your own way, the day will come when God says, go for it. And he turns you over to your own sin, to the things that you have chosen above him. Whatever idols you have crowned, he will turn you over to them. And one of the results is your thinking goes bad. You come to wrong conclusions, you can't think clearly. The more you know the Word of God, the more clearly you're going to think. The renewing of your mind. Now, um, it's impossible to understand the moral world we live in when we detach ourselves from the God that created it all. Uh, it says given up to impurity, sexual perversion, and a reprobate mind is what they were given up to. Paul next paints a sobering picture of the lifestyles of the God-rejecting Gentiles by listing 21 negative qualities of those abandoned to their own sinful natures. If you want to know what an abandoned culture, an abandoned society looks like, here it is. They are filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They don't honor authority. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. How many of you want to go on vacation with these folks? Right? But, but I ask you again, do you see this in our culture right now? Oh, yeah. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Now, that's when you know a society has been turned over. Not just when these things flourish, um, heterosexual, sexual sin, 
homosexual sin and the reprobate mind, not only when those things flourish, but when that same society approves of it and claps for it and even mandates that you go along with it. That you say, oh yeah, I'm good with it. Not just that you sit idly by in silence, but you've got to chime in and say, I'm all for it. The, the society that celebrates sin, in my opinion, and the word of God's teaching has been turned over. I know these are hard words, but I'm going to tell you folks, I believe a big swath of America has been turned over. It's the only thing that makes sense. And, and I read culture and society through the lens of the word, not my own thinking. Okay? Now, chapter 2 is going to focus on God's indictment on all hypocrites, regardless of their race, religion, culture, or creed. Both Jews and Gentiles are in the crosshairs of God's judgment. And again, Romans 1 through 3 is going to show us that mankind is hopelessly in, in the ditch of sin, and that's why we needed a Savior, because we can't dig ourselves out. Can I have an amen? All right? So after focusing on chapter 1 on the gross and flagrant sins of the openly ungodly, God turns his attention to respectable sinners who, thinking themselves better than others, fall into the same sins as those they pretend to despise. So we're talking about uh, uh, Jesus' favorite kind of person, the hypocrite. Have you ever looked up how many times Jesus castigated somebody for being a hypocrite? Oh, over and over again. Now let's read it. Verse 1, chapter 2. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge the other, you are condemning yourself. Why? Because you that are passing judgment are doing the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. In other words, God has a right to judge those who point their finger at somebody else for doing some sin when four fingers are pointing back at you because you're doing the same thing. All right? So here Paul is addressing the Jews, the respectable sinners, who approved of God's judgment on the pagan world. Oh, yeah, God, judge them. They're breaking all of Moses' commandments, all of your commandments. Judge them. Unlike the Gentiles described in chapter 1, verse 32, who not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them, the Jews, on the other hand, condemned these things. They condemned uh, heterosexual sexual sin. They condemned homosexuality. But watch where Paul goes with this. In doing so, they revealed a knowledge of God, an awareness of sin and an acknowledgement of his right to judge sin. How the Jews know? Because to them were given the oracles of God. Moses was Jewish. He, uh, it was, Israel was Jewish. And to them came the oracles, the commandments, the laws, the revelation of God. So they knew what was wrong and right. Not by reading nature, but by reading the word of God through Moses. All right? So they assumed that their approval of God's judgment upon the pagan world proved that they themselves were right with God. And this should have been true, but it was not true because the Jews were practicing the very things they judged in others. So we can real safely say Paul in chapter 2, starting at verse 1, is about to meddle with their stuff. The Jews, all right? Verse 3, so when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things? Do you think that you're going to escape God's judgment? Paul is charging that by passing judgment on the Gentiles, uh, the Jews condemned themselves because they were doing the very same thing. Judging in others. Now, here's a principle of life. Judging in others, what we ourselves practice, invites God's judgment. Everybody say, ooh, have I been doing any of that? If I've been pointing a finger at somebody and I'm doing the same thing, uh, of course, none of us have, do that. We're, we're respectable sinners, right? No. 
But let me read it again. Judging in others what we ourselves practice invites God's judgment. It treats with contempt the great kindness and patience of God. Uh, look at the next verse. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and that you do the same things, do you think you're going to get out of God's judgment? Or do you show contempt, verse 4, for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance? What a lot of backsliders don't understand, you start backsliding, you walk away from God, and you go off into the world and you break from church and break from prayer and you break fellowship that is vertical with you and, and God and you give into your flesh. At first, there's no consequences. The, the prodigal son was party and hearty when he got to the far country. He wasn't experiencing any negative consequences at all. He was having the time of his life. But here's what we need to understand. When we first begin to drift, God will often be very kind He'll show us little gestures of mercy in hopes that it will lead us to repentance. Oh, look, I'm messing up and God's being good to me anyway. Lord, so forgive me. Forgive me. You're such a good God. Okay? So many interpret it as, well, there's no consequences for sin. But know what you're experiencing is the kindness and the mercy of God in hopes that his goodness will cause you to look up and say, I can't walk away from you. Please forgive me. Or do you show contempt? Uh, here we have key insight into the hypocrite. The sin of the hypocrite is that of being indignant at other people's shortcomings while being indulgent of his own. That's the hypocrite. All right? Oh, uh, yeah, old Joe, he goes out, he gets smashed every weekend. Not me while you're smoking the joint. I'm being real now. Oh, you know, old Mary, you know, she's, she's hooked on, she's hooked on those painkillers and, you know, uh, she's just living a life of sin and she says she's a Christian, but she ain't no Christian while you are hooked on something else. And so he's just saying, look, uh, there's a good kind of judgment, a right kind of judgment, and a wrong kind. This is what Jesus was talking about in Matthew 7, verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. Sinners love that verse. I think that's the only verse our culture knows. Judge not that you be not judged. I mean, they can quote that with the best of them. As soon as you go up to somebody living in sin in our world, judge not. Jesus said, judge not. That's the only Jesus statement they know anything about. But here's what Jesus was talking about. You've got a log in your own eye. How can you operate to take the speck out of your brother's eye? Remove the log from your own eye and don't be a hypocrite. Then you can operate on the speck that is in your brother's eye. But until then, dude, you can't see to operate. There's a two by four in your eye. Right? But, but Jesus wasn't telling us to never judge because if you don't judge things, you're going to be dead in a month. We've got to judge things every day to stay alive, right? Okay, so he goes on. The hypocrite bashes others for the very thing he allows. He finger points with when four of his own fingers are pointing back at him. This is not saying that we shouldn't judge sin. We should judge sin. If you don't judge, hey, how many of you, uh, I mean, have ever seen a bottle of, say, strychnine poison? Strychnine, said strychnine poison or some kind of rat poison, whatever. D does it matter if you make a judgment when you see that on the container? If you're thinking about salting your meal with something like that, are you going to make a judgment and say, that's poison, I better, I can't touch it? Of course not. But we, we, we don't do this when it comes to spiritual things. We don't judge. But we should. You're not supposed to hypocritically judge, but you are supposed to judge what is right and wrong, good and bad, light and dark, godly and ungodly. If you don't do that, then you're going to be taken in by the devil and destroyed. It's just saying that we shouldn't harshly judge others for sins that thrive in our own backyard. So the essence of hypocrisy is to allow in ourselves what we condemn in others. And the word hypocrite comes from a word meaning to act a part as on a stage. The hypocrite is just a play actor. He puts on a show for the benefit of other people, but he never gets away with it with God. You can fool some of the people 
some of the time, but you can't fool God none of the time. He sees it all. Amen? Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. In other words, it's justified. No other person came under more scathing indictment from the Lord Jesus Christ, as I've already mentioned, than the hypocrite. Fifteen times in Matthew's gospel alone, Jesus rebukes hypocrites. Fifteen times. The hypocrite forgets the times when God's goodness was extended to him. And we already read that. The hypocrite's memory is short when remembering all the times God had mercy on them in order to produce repentance. And that's the essence of the hypocrisy of many religious folks who turn their nose up at the addicted, at the crushed, at the broken, and at the broke. They forget that God once also delivered them from the pit. I like to say, you got to remember from whence you have come. Do you remember from whence you have come tonight? I do. I was sitting in a dingy, depressing, juvenile jail cell when I heard the gospel. That's from whence I have come. I had no high school. I had no future to speak of, and I was in heap big trouble. If anybody needed grace and mercy, it was me. I remember from whence I've come. And, and it's good to do when you find yourself pointing at others and going, I'm so glad I'm not like them, to say, wait a minute, I used to be like them. I might even have used to have been worse than them. And so it kind of helps you to keep things balanced. Amen? Now, Paul continues in his indictment of the hypocrite, telling them what they face. Look at verse 5, because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6, God will give to each person according to what he has done. If those verses don't scare you, I don't know if your heart's beating. Okay? Okay? Because look what he's saying here. The phrase, storing up wrath. Storing up wrath. It's very telling. It pictures the sinner storing away day by day a fresh deposit of wickedness for judgment in a coming day. It's like making a fresh daily deposit into the savings account of coming judgment against yourself. I mean, when we go to the bank and we make a deposit, we're we're happy, right? Because now we've got money going into the bank. So more is in our account than when we went to the bank. Paul is saying sin is that way. If you don't repent of sin, then you're putting, you're putting sin into your spiritual account, and the account is growing. And you're literally storing up a savings account of sin that will result in the wrath of God and the judgment of God on the day of judgment. You're, literally, you're, you're depositing into your spiritual account of sin every day, and it's accumulating, and it's gaining interest. So that if you don't come to Christ and let his blood cover your sin, then you will answer for all that you have put into your spiritual bank account because all of us have an account. And you either have your sins in your account or you have the imputed deposit of the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ. Are you with me? Now, how many of you are glad that in your account... It's not your sin because they've been washed away, but the blood and the righteousness of Jesus are in your account. Amen? He made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made, declared, the righteousness of God in him. So thank God when you come to Christ, your account, the sin in it, is wiped out. The debt you owe to God is wiped away, and the righteousness of God through Christ is placed into your account. Amen. Next, Paul describes the judgment of the hypocrite. First, we see that the hypocrite is judged according to his works. To those who, by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. Folks, there's a judgment coming. i got to tell you the truth. Woe unto me if I preach not the full gospel. There is a judgment coming. As surely as you're sitting here and I'm sitting here, 
The judgment of God is coming. And every human being that's walked this planet is going to answer to God in one of two ways. I have all this sin in my account. And now I've got to answer to you for it and experience the judgment of God. Or my sin account was wiped away and all the accusations against me were made null and void by the blood of Jesus Christ. In my account is his righteousness. And that's the only two ways you're ever going to meet God. To those who by persistence and doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he's going to give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and reject the truth and go after evil, you're going to face wrath and anger. Now, verse 9, there will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, then for the Gentiles. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now, now these passages are difficult in this way. Because it gives the impression that salvation is earned by works, not grace. Because we read the phrases, does evil or does good. So it sounds like our salvation is based on what we do or don't do. So let me explain it. When a person persists in doing good and is seeking for glory, honor, incorruption, and eternal life in well-doing, it attests to, it proves the presence of saving faith. Amen? How many of you are all worried about pleasing God before you were saved? No, you were worried about pleasing you and your flesh. But once you were saved, it was, what can I do to please God? How can I learn to please God? I need to learn how to please God. I want to please the Lord. I want my walk and my lifestyle to be pleasing to Him, right? What did that? You got a brand new nature. So that's what it's talking about. Someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Now here's the words of James. Somebody will say, you have faith, but I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds. And James says, I'll show you my faith by what I do. Saving faith is persevering faith. It's acting faith. Faith will cause your feet to move, your mouth to talk, your life to go a certain direction. Saving faith. You won't have saving faith very long, but you're going to be involved in what the Bible calls good works. And what do the good works testify of? That you're truly saved. Was Jeff Wickwire worried about preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ when I was sitting in jail at 16 years old? That's the last thing on my mind or anybody else's for me. But when I got saved, that saving faith moved me to good works. So good works don't save me, but they attest to the fact that I am saved. Okay? Saving faith. And for the person of faith, the perfect righteous life of Jesus Christ has already instantly been imputed, added to your account, is what that means. Credited to your account at the moment you were saved. That's why I tell Christians, I don't care if you've got two nickels to rub together or not, you're rich. And they say, how am I rich? You are rich because the righteousness of Jesus Christ is sitting in your account. Yes. And money can't buy that. Amen. How many of you are glad that the riches of the righteousness of Christ are in your spiritual bank account? Come on, everybody. Blessed is the man, it says in chapter 4, to whom the Lord shall not impute or credit to his account his sin. And we're going to look more at the word imputed in chapter 4. It's so rich. Don't miss that. So the wicked person or the hypocrite will be judged by his deeds, not his faith. His deeds will be credited, or better put, debited to his account. As the song so accurately says that I love quoting, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. How many of you can say that? I owed a sin debt I could not pay. I needed somebody else to wash my sin away because I couldn't do it. But now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Why? Because Christ Jesus paid off my debt. He paid the debt that I could never pay. Amen. I just want to have a worship moment right now. Amen. Can we just lift our hands and thank the Lord that 
He paid off our debt, our sin debt, and he filled our spiritual bank account with the riches of his righteousness. Can we just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. So everybody say with me, I'm rich. Oh, yeah. Now, look at Colossians 2, verse 13. Paul writes these words. I love this. When you were stuck in your old sin-dead life, you were incapable of responding to God. But God brought you alive right along with Christ. Think of it. All sins forgiven. The slate wiped clean. That old arrest warrant canceled and nailed to Christ's cross. He stripped all the spiritual tyrants in the universe of their sham authority at the cross and marched them naked through the streets. Amen. When we place our faith in the finished work of Christ, two things happen immediately. First, all of our sin debt is canceled. The charges legitimately leveled against us by Satan are dropped. Second, the perfect righteous life of Christ is imputed to us, placed in our spiritual bank account. I've never had a warrant for my arrest but I can imagine what it would be like looking over your shoulder every day, always looking in the rearview mirror when you're driving, wondering who's walking up to you if you don't recognize them, always uptight, always full of fear. Uh, the Bible says uh, that the sinner always thinks somebody's after them. You live a paranoid life. But if you know there's a warrant out for your arrest, uh, you have no peace, you don't sleep well, you sleep with one eye open because maybe they're going to come to the door, my days are numbered, when are they going to find me, how long can I hide? And what if somebody came up to you and said, hey, I wanted to let you know that there's been a warrant out for your arrest and you've been on the run, but somebody came forward in your stead and paid off your legal debt and there's no more warrant against you you're free you can rest easy there's no more warrant the warrant has been canceled that's what jesus did because we were all hellbound and now the warrant has been canceled because all the charges the devil legitimately raised against us have been wiped away wow but the hypocrite the sinner who's living by works will be judged according to their works. And at the judgment, it won't matter who you are, how much money you had, or how many good works in your eyes you performed. If you have not placed your faith in the shed blood of Christ, your spiritual bank account will prove to be in bankruptcy. You are yet in your sins. And God will judge accordingly, I assure you. Paul writes, without showing special favor to anyone. Look at chapter 2, verse 11. For God does not show favoritism. We do. God doesn't. Doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are. Handsome, pretty, what your pedigree is, where you're from, where you've lived, what you've done. God doesn't show favoritism to anybody. But we are all made equal at the judgment bar of God. And either the blood is in our account or it's not. Now, Pat, Paul next talks about those who have possessed a level of light. Look at verse 12. All who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. And all who sin under the law. Now, when it says law, it's talking about the, the Mosaic, what Moses brought us, the Ten Commandments. The law, all right? The Ten Commandments were God's standard of righteousness. The Ten Commandments showed us that we can never live up to God's requirements for righteousness. Try living out the Ten Commandments without breaking one of them for one day. Try it. Try it. And come tell us how that worked out for you. You won't do it because we break them. We can't do it. But Jesus came along and he said, give me that weight. I'll do it. And he lifted a, a barbell with ten weights on it. He lifted it. And he lived it. He lived it. He's the only one that ever lifted it. He's the only one that it didn't crush. He's the only one that was not condemned by it. He lived it. And that's why his blood was righteous blood. So all who sin apart from the law, they're going to perish apart from those commandments. All who sin under the law, who knew the law, will be judged by the law. For it's not those who hear it who are righteous in God's sight, but it's those who do what? 
Say it with me. Obey the law. Who will be, I'm on page seven. Who will be declared righteous? Well, we can't obey it. Those who have heard, who are rather who have the word of God, have much more light than those without it. Now he's talking about the Jews. They had the word of God. The Gentile world as, as a whole didn't. The possession of an open Bible greatly increases our ability to know God's will. But light is light regardless of how dim or how bright it might happen to be. Now let's use an illustration. If a person is lost in a dark cave, the least glimmer of light would draw him towards it. If he desired deliverance from the darkness, he would move toward the light with joy, would he not? I've been in caves where you couldn't see anything, nothing, pitch black, no light at all, whatsoever. Scariest thing to experience in the world. Turn off that flashlight and there is no light getting into that cave. And you are in pitch black dark. Your eyes are never going to adjust. You're never going to see your hand in front of your face. It's that dark. If I'm lost in a cave like that and I see just a dim glimmer of light in yonder distance, I'm headed for that light. Okay? He would move towards the light with joy. But if he had some guilt to hide, he would not respond to the light except to hide or flee from it regardless of its dimness or brilliance. This is why Jesus said, judgment is based on this. God's light came into the world. Who's the light? He was. And people love the darkness of sin more than the light because their actions were evil. And all who do evil hate the light, refuse to go near it for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light so others can see that they are doing what God wants. Now, what are we saying? If you really want to be free, the slightest glimmer of the dimmest light will pull you towards it. Paul says that doom awaits all who reject the light. But for those who have had a greater advantage, there's less excuse and greater guilt. Now, I told you last week that I believe even if you haven't heard the gospel, but you're looking at nature, you go, there's no way this just happened. No way. There has to be a God. Look at this. I'm, this is not the result of evolution. Evolution didn't do this. Just your eyeball. Tell me how your eyeball came about by evolution. What came first, the pupil or the iris? What came first, the white part, the color part, the pupil in the middle? What, what came first, the socket to hold it or the eye that looking for a socket? I mean, how does random evolution ever come up with such a thing? It can't. That's crazy. It's called irreducible complexity. Irreducible complexity says you've got something like the eye that there's no way it could have come to pass because there's so many working parts in it that needed to be uh, brought into existence all at the very same time or it would never have worked. It's irreducible complexity. Now, if I just look out there and I start thinking, wow, uh, there has to be a God. I'm like the guy in the cave who sees a dim light. Okay? Now, I contend, if you're the guy in the cave and you see the dim light, you go, there has to be a God. If you say, God, if you're there, show me. What are you doing? You're responding to the light. And I contend, God will find you. God will find you, and he will get somebody to you with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, that's the spotlight. Forget a dim light, that's the spotlight. Now, what the Gentiles had was not in written form like the Jews who had Moses' commandments, Moses' law, but it was etched into their conscience. It may not have been as clearly spelled out as what the Jews had been given by Moses, but they did have the basic moral concepts of God written into their consciousness by God. To those moral codes, their conscience bore witness. Now, everybody pay attention here, because what we're about to be told is God gave everybody a conscience, and that's the dim light. That's one of those dim lights. 
Listen to what Paul says in verses 14 to 16. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. Verse 15, since they show that the requirements of the law are written on their where hearts, their consciences also bearing witness, and their thoughts either accusing them or excusing them, accusing them or defending them. Now, this is talking about guilt. Where does guilt come from? If you're lost, you don't know Jesus, but you go kill somebody or you steal something. Where does the guilt come from? The guilt comes from your conscience. Where'd your conscience come from? He's telling us right here. It came from God. He wrote his law into your conscience. Now, the Jews had the Torah. They had the Ten Commandments. They had the Mosaic law by revelation from God written on the stones. But the Gentiles didn't have that. But what did they have? They had the dim light in the cave. They had the conscience. They had the testimony of nature. They had nature preaching. There is a God. They had their conscience preaching. There is a right and wrong. Where did the right and wrong come from? A God who is a moral God who gave you what is right and what is wrong. So you steal something as a kid and your conscience bugs you. You can't sleep at night. If you're older, you commit adultery or you rob a bank or whatever. Your conscience bugs you, haunts you. Uh, chases you, tracks you, won't leave you alone. I love the ID channel. I watch the ID channel all the time. It's really the only thing I ever watch, the ID channel, pretty much. Because the ID channel shows crimes committed and how the criminals are found. And how many times have I seen on the ID channel somebody finally just unload their crime in front of the police because they can't carry it anymore. And they're not saved. So what's going on with them? They've got a conscience. And the conscience says there is an ultimate right and wrong. And it came from God. It's the dim light in the cave. It's the dim light in the cave. And when you see that dim light, you go, wow, I know there's a right and wrong, and I know that I'm doing wrong. God, if you're really there, show me, because I need somehow to deal with this wrong. And you're going to find a Christian easing up to you before long at all, telling you about Jesus Christ. Are y'all with me now? Now, let me tell you the downside of the conscience. We're almost done. According to Scripture, conscience is intended to be a goad, not a guide. The person who says, well, just let conscience be your guide, that's not good advice. Don't do that. Don't let your conscience be your guide. Now, if you're a Christian, you're under conviction of the Holy Spirit, that's different. But I would never say to somebody lost, just let your conscience be your guide. Why? Because... Conscience is God's watchdog in the soul. When you do wrong, it barks. When you do right, it quietly sits in the house. My dog today was driving me insane. I've got a half pit bull, half lab. And I put her out back. And I hear her start barking, 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 barking. And I'm thinking, surely whatever it is is going to go away. It did not go away. Finally, I looked out there. And there was somebody real close to our property, and she was freaking out. That's a good girl, good girl. That's a good watchdog. But here's the deal. Your conscience will bark if wrong gets too close to your soul. You better listen to that, especially if you're a believer. Listen to the conviction of God. Listen to that conscience. But it's not flawless if if you're lost. Here's why. Because... The conscience can be seared, blunted, silenced by years of sin. For instance, Paul talked about false teachers whose consciences have been seared as with a hot iron. All right? We've all been burned bad, like by an iron. And and that skin, suddenly, you can't feel anything. It's dead. It's seared. Your conscience is the same way. You sin enough. At first, you can hear God real good. Bark, 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 bark. 
But the more you sin, bark, 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 keep sinning, bark, 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 keep sinning, And you can't hear anymore. And now you're in trouble. That's why you keep your conscience sharp by immediately obeying the promptings of God. Okay? The conscience needs to be educated, monitored by the Word of God. If not, it can prove to be very elastic and flexible. And some people even dispense with it completely. Those are sociopaths and psychopaths, they have no more conscience. Paul's point is that conscience is a light in that dark cave, however dim, and it bears witness to the fact that man lives in a moral universe and is ultimately answerable to God. So nature is the dim light in the dark cave. Your conscience is a dim light in a dark cave. Finally, Paul shows that authenticity is inward, and here we're going to close with the final verses. Chapter 2, 17 through 24. Now you, if you call yourself a Jew... If you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind, a light for those who are in the dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, are you stealing? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, are you robbing temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you Jews. Because you've got all the revelation of God, and you're supposed to be teaching them, but you say one thing and you do another If you want to lose your teenagers fast, tell them, don't you do this and don't you do that. That doesn't honor God. And then you're off doing something that doesn't honor God. Amen, Pastor Jeff. That's good preaching. Amen. Hallelujah. I'm just saying. I mean, this is, look, we all make mistakes. None of us are perfect. We all have flaws. All of us. I probably have more than anybody in here. I'm far from perfect, but I'm going to tell you, I love God's word. Do I, do I live perfectly? Not even, no, I don't. Am I open sin? No, I'm not living in any sin, but do I mess up? Do I think things and say things and do things that I have to repent for? Yes. I love God's word. I'm not perfect, but I'm sincere. What about you? Okay, so I know these things can sting, but I had to study it before I had to share it with you. So it stung me before it stung you, right? Now, look, you preach it and teach it, Paul says, but you're hypocrites and don't live it. Don't bring a bad testimony. So here's the final uh, principle, and we're closing. True spiritual authenticity is only found within. It's not by what you do. It's who you are. He says... In verse 29, a man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, it's from God. So, That's it for chapter 2 tonight. Now, next time, we're going to be in chapter 3, and we're going to finish, and we're going to get out of the ditch. How many of you are ready to get out of the ditch? All right, let's stand together tonight, can we? How many of you love the Word of God? You're so thankful for the Word of God. Amen? Let me ask a question. How many of you saw a dim light in a dark cave, and you said, God, if you're real, show me? Look at that. All the people who saw that dim light in a dark cave. Amen. If you come to this church, you're going to get a scorching spotlight, and you're going to get a chance to repent real quick. But, you know, that's what church is supposed to be. You know, I've noticed something. There are so many people who, this was a question that came to me on the radio as well. They said, 
Pastor Jeff, what about the parable of the wheat and the tares? What is that about? Well, I'm not going to teach further here tonight, but I'll just, in a nutshell, Jesus just in a parable said, well, a good man went out and sowed wheat in his field, and when he went home, went to bed, somebody came and sowed tares. Now, in Texas terminology, weeds, okay? And so the man went out, and he says, What's these, what are these weeds growing up next to the wheat that I sowed? And then in the parable, Jesus says, an enemy has done this. And then the owner says, well, should I pull up the, the weeds and get them away from the wheat? He said, no, unless you pull up the wheat with it. But uh, let them both grow together until the harvest. And the harvest is when Christ returns in his second advent and judges the nations of the world sheep and goats and all of that. Now, there are weeds growing right up next to wheat in churches all over the world. And here's what I've noted. If somebody is with you, really, it'll show. Um, John said, they left, they went out from us because they were not of us. So different things will come along that will reveal who's really with you and really with him and who really isn't. And it hurts, it's hard, but it needs to be seen. Now, how many of you want to be wheat? Amen? Wheat. Well, if you know Jesus, you're wheat. Really know Jesus. Amen? I'm so thankful for the grace of God. You enjoy it tonight? Let's lift our hands. And let's just thank the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, we just thank you for the grace of God. We thank you for that dim light in the dark cave that many of us saw and said, Lord, if you're there, show me. Lord, thank you for the bright light of the gospel of Christ that when we heard it, we were saved. Thank you, Lord, for giving us a conscience and the testimony of nature. But more than anything else, thank you that Jesus died on the cross and his righteousness has now been placed in our spiritual bank account and we are rich, rich, rich indeed. And we thank you for the righteousness of Christ and that we're no longer under condemnation and there's no more arrest warrants out for us in the spiritual universe because Jesus took away all of the guilt in Jesus' name. Amen. We love you in the Lord. And um, amen.